I won't take a, I won't make you raise your hand. I was curious how many maybe were here an hour ago ready to, ready to go, but I think we've done pretty well. <laughs> Setting our clocks back. Maybe we can thank Apple for that, for doing it for us and taking, the, taking it off of our shoulders. So, um, Seth, the Thompsons, of course, are down in Dallas, uh, as Aaron's having her second child tomorrow, so we'll be praying for them. He texted me this morning, and he said, God's power will be on display in Sunday school this morning. I just know it. And that's because that's what we're talking about this morning. The chapter is the power of God. So he was able to say that no matter who's teaching, the, teaching Sunday school this morning. So, uh, but that is what we'll be looking at, the, the whole... Uh, uh, category of the power of God in Scripture. So we have a lot to, to think about. Um, I've had to sort of summarize some of what he's done. If, there's, if there are elements of this this morning that especially interest you, just assume that there's more to it in the chapter. If you'd like to go and read it on your own, you will, you'll get some things that we won't be looking at this morning. But um, let's begin uh, with prayer, asking God to, to guard our our, uh, our thinking and to bless us as we, as we study. Heavenly Father, you are and always have been so good and faithful to us. Uh, we are grateful for what, uh, what you're doing among us and through us and to us this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray for the, the kids in the back of this building, in their own classes, with their own teachers. I pray for their teachers, Lord, that you would, that you would strengthen and bless them. Uh, and Lord, thank you for teaching and, and, uh, and training our, our young ones. We pray, Lord, for their salvation. We pray that, uh, that, that they would be coming more and more to understand you as you really are and to understand themselves as they really are so that they would respond in faith in Christ and in repentance of sin. Uh, Father, we, we pray, uh, I pray for this, for this room this morning. Uh, we have such a, such a lofty topic to think about. Um, full of, just full of amazing truths from Scripture, full of, um, full of hope for us, uh, full of causes for worship, and we pray that that would be the outcome of this hour, that worship would be the outcome. Uh, we do pray for the Thomasons. There are many others uh, who, are, uh, who are traveling and maybe not here this morning, but especially we think of them and their daughter Erin, uh, who's, who's expecting tomorrow. Uh, to, to have her second. We just pray for your hand on, on her and on the delivery and on that family. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for all of your good gifts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 23. Uh, oh, there we go. I always forget that you add that as the first slide, David. That's really smart of you. You outsmart me every week. Um, Chapter 23, so here's where we are. We're really getting low on this, on this slide. Um, we have uh, two more weeks before we break from frame and, have an, and, and go to our next study, which will be on this book called A Time for Confidence. I'll just start to plug it here since I'm up here this morning. The subtitle is Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. All right, Timely. Uh, I think it will be really uh, good thought for us, good, good discussion, um, and I'm looking forward to that. So you can be planning for that to start here this month, uh, now that we're in November. And then we'll plan to return to frame uh, in the new year to, to finish up. But here's where we are this morning, God's power. Um, I wanted to start in a way I don't usually start. 
just, I'm, I'm curious where you would go with this, and because I think that some things may come up that, uh, that, that will lead well into, into our time this morning. All right, so we're talking about God's power. So think for a second about the power of God. Think about what the Bible has, what you know from Scripture, how the Bible describes it um, or portrays it. And let's, let's just brainstorm for a minute here. I'm curious. What comes to your mind when you think about the power of God in Scripture? way to say that. I may borrow that, that statement here in a little bit, too. His power is such that there is nothing in his creation that prevents him. So we'll talk about preventers a little bit this morning. Ken has mentioned preventers in some past chapters. And what Rob's saying is um, there are no preventers in all of God's creation uh, when it comes to the, the extension of his power. For the recording of repeating some of what we say. So you tell me if I misquote you. But Dennis is saying his power is put on display in more than one way. His power is displayed especially in the creation in a unique way, the extent of his power, the speaking light and universes and galaxies into existence. His power, though, is also on display in a very special way in his people, in what he is doing to save a people. That's a display of his power as well. Is that a fair representation of what you said? Good. He's, not, he's nodding his head. Good. Anything else comes to your mind about God's power? Speaking of words and expressions that we use, I've been waiting for someone to throw out a particular word that usually comes along with us when we're talking about the power of God. What words do we use to describe? I'm fishing now for one specific word. What words do we use to describe his power? I'm sorry. Omnipotence. Yeah, awesome. The awesome nature of his power. But especially, uh, what I'm fishing for is that word specifically, omnipotence. Right? And we'll be talking about omnipotence quite a bit this morning. Um, with that idea, I mean, omnipotence, uh, all power belongs to him. We, we can start to struggle, and this is something I'm passing over in the chapter. He spends some time expressing um, how, uh, historically, how difficult it has been for us to try to figure out how to define Something like omnipotence. What exactly do we mean when we are speaking of the omnipotence of God as, an ex, as the extent of his power? Um, and he, he, he makes pretty clear to us in this chapter that, that when we think about his power, a large part of the battle is in deciding how to talk about it. Um, the nice thing is, as there has been through so many of these chapters on his attributes, uh, we are very safe to simply uh, speak the Bible's words uh, to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about this, about his power uh, and the extent of his power? We, we talked several weeks ago when we looked at the names of God. We noticed how many of the names he gives us are connected to, the, to his power, to the extent of his power, right? You may remember that. Um, when we look into scripture and ask it to, t- to teach us about God's power, and especially the extent of it. Uh, there, are some, there are some themes that we find showing up over and over again. Uh, a couple of them uh, in particular that we'll start with. Uh, oh, so here we are on our, on our uh, little categories there. We're looking at power as a category, but even especially uh, power within this greater category. Power and will is what we'll look at this morning. Um, Two themes that we see show up over and over again in the Bible when it speaks about God's power 
and the extent of it. And we're going to start to get toward what Rob was saying about uh, within his creation. That's the context that his power is spoken of so often in Scripture. And here's the first uh, conclusion that the, that the Bible would give to us about how powerful is God. Here's one thing we can say. He is so powerful that no one can frustrate him. He cannot be frustrated. His, his purposes cannot be frustrated. Uh, we saw a lot of these verses we're going to go back over um, several months ago when we talked about the control of God in Scripture. The control, uh, not just power, but control. So look at, just remember some of these uh, statements. Job 23, 13. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. doesn't mean that no plans are ever made in his creation that try to work against him, but it means none of them are powerful enough to succeed in that. Why? He has more power. He is more powerful than they. None of them are able to frustrate his plans. Isaiah 43, 13, no one can deliver out of my hand. What a terrifying statement. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? You hear the point he's trying to make about himself. He's telling us something about his power here. He's speaking to his creation and saying, sorry, my power is simply too great for you to ever successfully frustrate my purposes. Uh, Daniel 4, 35 all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? There we get an additional piece. Uh, not only is no one strong enough to hold his hand back, right? but also no one has the authority to question his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? Right? So we get even more in that portrayal. So these are just, just a, a small sample of, the, of some of the ways the Bible will speak to us about the extent of God's power. And this is the conclusion that we find in all of these. Nobody can frustrate God. The second conclusion we can come to is related to it, uh, and that is that uh, he can subdue anybody who resists him. And in fact, eventually he will. That's exactly what he will do. Anyone who tries to resist him will be subdued. We just read this morning, Dennis read for us out of uh, Psalm 2, and these, this incredible uh, description, if you remember that, about the nations gathering up in opposition to God and to his authority over them, and it says he laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Uh, and then he speaks to them and terrifies them in his anger. I mean, there's just, they're going to try uh, to resist him, but no one will be able to do that. He can subdue anybody. Uh, so this is just one that, that we'll put up here. Philippians 3.21, uh, Paul speaks of God, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In one sense, everything is always under his control, right? Nothing can breathe or no molecule can rotate. Uh, nothing can continue to exist without his permission. So everything is always in his control in that sense. But this is speaking about something else. This is talking about the reality that there is now currently rebellion against God, 
right? Uh, how does that, uh, how does it go for that rebellion when it comes up against the power of God? Well, he has the power to bring everything under his control, under his authority. Um, this is the extent of his power. So when we, when we take these two ideas, we, this is where we start to develop our understanding of, uh, that leads us to the word omnipotence. You know, the word omnipotence is not in the Bible. This is one of those words we have used to try to sum up the teaching of Scripture about, about a subject. What does the Bible tell us about how powerful God is? Is he really powerful? Or does he have, does all power belong to him? We would look at these sorts of things and say, yeah, that's second thing. So he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Um, this is how we come to describe the extent of his power. Uh, and this is where, in our chapter, frame, frame leads us through some things um, that we're not going to, to, to go into this morning just for sake of time, but he lays out how difficult it has been to define that idea of omnipotence, uh, which is pretty interesting to me, um, but I didn't think fruitful for us to spend time in. So he, here's what he does after that, though. He says, here are two clear biblical principles. We've already seen a couple here uh, where we get this idea from. Um, oh, wait, where did I have them both up there? These two. Uh, nobody can frustrate him, and he can subdue anyone who resists him. Um, but that doesn't really define omnipotence for us. It doesn't settle some, some struggles that we might have. Um, for example, uh, would we say that God can do all things? So we, we, we did, um, when Landry was really little, we, we used a catechism. We didn't do this with the others for some reason, but we, we, for a while we were going through a catechism with him when he was very young, um, a children's catechism, and one of the questions was, can God do all things? And the answer was, yes, God can do all his holy will. Can God do all things? Yes, God can do all his holy will. And that's an interesting way to answer that question. Um, because it circumvents, for me, some other questions that I might have. Can God do all things? This is where we're going to start to, to go this morning. All right. Please, as we're going through, there is time built in, plenty of time, I think, this morning. I think I did a good job this week of building in time for us to discuss. I know I've said that before and then failed you, but uh, I think, ignore that, I think this is going to be the case. Okay, so um, we're going to start working toward this sense of what do we mean when we say that God can do all things, because the Bible will say things to that effect. We'll hear it say, all things are possible with God. That's scripture. The question is, how are we to understand these things? What context do we put them in? Um, and this is where Frame gets really helpful for us. He says, the idea of omnipotence is seen fundamentally in Scripture in two statements. All right, here's the first one. God can do anything he pleases. This is one of the, the, big, way, the, the big ideas we're going to take from Scripture from which we will develop our concept of omnipotence. God can do anything he pleases. We've seen some, just before, we saw some verses about how no one can frustrate his purposes. Right? Um, Psalm 135 Six, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. The Lord does whatever pleases him. 
Daniel 4 and 35, uh, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand. We just saw that one, right? He does as he pleases. So the Bible is very clear about, about this fundamental truth. God can do anything that he is pleased to do. Here's the second one that would go along with that. And that is this idea that nothing is too hard for God. How many times do we read that question in the Bible? Is anything too hard for God? That Bible comes up, that, that's, that reference comes up over and over again. Uh, Genesis 18, when God is speaking to Abraham and Sarah, he promises this 90-year-old woman that she's going to suddenly become fertile and bear a child. And she laughs. And he says what? Why do you laugh, Sarah? Is anything too hard for God? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And he does, and she does. And that, what was a cause of laughter, because of a sense of surely he, this cannot happen, is now a cause for humility, for joyful laughter, uh, for praise. Uh, Luke one thirty seven: nothing is impossible with God. Number ele- numbers 11.23, is the Lord's arm too short? And, of course, the expected answer is, no, it's not. Zechariah 8, 6. I don't have this one up there. This is, this is a great statement. It may, he's, he's been uh, promising some incredible things to come. And he says, it may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And there's the statement, right, With we can uh, stumble over. It's something, I decided to put it this way, it's something that we can, we can make ourselves get a headache, <laughs> we can give ourselves a headache uh, struggling with this statement if we think too much in the wrong way. Uh, all things are possible for God. The reason that can be difficult is because we know that there are, th- there are things he cannot do. There are things he cannot do. Uh, God cannot sin. He is unable to sin. God cannot kill himself. He is unable to die. Uh, God cannot violate the laws of logic which reflect his character. So he cannot create a square circle. He cannot create a stone too heavy for himself to lift. I remember being, it's one of my first memories of the internet age. So I must have been, I don't know how old I was. How old would I have been? We got, it was like one of the first emails ever sent to me. I felt so, I was so excited. My grandfather sent his grandkids, all the grandboys, the grandsons, uh, an email with a question. And without the answer, it was very, it turned out to be a good thing, but it was frustrating at first. If God can do anything, can he create a stone too heavy for himself to lift? Love, Grandpa. And we had to, you know. And this, this led to a, to a long set of, of individual thought and conversation, right? It's that kind of philosopher's question, right, about, about God. Um, and we'll see that the answer to that is no. But here's the problem that we can have. Because those phrases up here start with the word unable, we are tempted to conclude that that means that God's omnipotence has limitations to it. 
We look at those things and we say, well, I guess we need to say God is mostly omnipotent, but not omnipotent. Because after all, there's some things I could say about him to start with the word unable. But see, that's sort of begging the question for us. Here's the question that that leads to for us. Are those things statements of limitation on God's power? Do those things represent a limitation of the power of God? And Frame's answer to that question is, it always depends on what's doing the preventing. It depends on the preventer. So um, God cannot sin. Well, what prevents him from sinning? Illness? Or injury? Is his schedule just too crowded? He could, he'd sin if he just had the time for it, but his schedule is totally booked, so he's unable to sin. What is it that's preventing him from sinning? Right? You could ask that question to each, each of these things. What we find is, oh, yeah, there's the question, right? Do these things represent contradictions of his omnipotence or limitations on his power? Um, and what we find is when we ask that question of these things, why is he unable, why would we say he is unable to do these things? What prevents him are, in fact, his divine perfections. It's his perfections that prevent him in these things. So he is unable to sin because of his complete moral perfection. He is unable to die because the nature of divinity is that all of life, he is the fountain of life, all of life is found in him. It is ir irrational. It's inconceivable to even try to say the sentence that, that God might die. That, that sentence makes no sense because of the complete perfections in the divine nature. Uh, he, he cannot create a stone too heavy for himself to lift because the inability to lift something due to strength, is a, that's a characteristic of finitude. There's a lot of things I can't pick up because they're too heavy for me. That's because I am limited, right? That's a statement of my limitations. The fact that that doesn't apply to him is a statement of his infinity. It's his infinity that results in him, and they're never being able logically to have a stone that can't be lifted by him. It doesn't make any sense. So those statements do not at all speak to uh, a, a lacking in him. They actually highlight the extraordinary power of God. And so Frame will say this. He says, not every inability is a lack of power. Indeed, some inabilities are marks of extraordinary power. And since we just had the World Series, and in, in respect of the loss of a Texas team in the World Series, I'll use a baseball example, which you won't find me do very often. I don't like baseball that much. See, chance I didn't say anything about soccer this time. So, yeah. Um, if you put a baseball bat in my hand and get, bring me up to a baseball diamond and start throwing some pitches to me, you're going to find some displays of, of limitation very, very quickly. All right? If you throw me 30 of them, you, you'll probably give... Here's this conclusion. He cannot, he cannot hit doubles. I could probably... I, I made the mistake up in Omaha when we looked at their playing on a, on a slow-pitch softball church. That was, uh, that was unfortunate for all my teammates. Um, but I did once make it to first base. So you could say, he, he, he cannot hit doubles. It's a statement. He is, let's use the word unable. He, that man is unable to hit a double. Right? That statement is an expression of limitations of my power. Right? 
But let's say you've got a guy named Jack. Jack has been in the major leagues for five years now, right? And every time that he has stepped up to the plate, he has hit a home run, 100% of the time. He goes up there, he doesn't stretch, he doesn't practice swing, he yawns, and then he hits a home run. And that's all he's done, right? And let's say that through his entire career, that's all he ever does. Now, you would, you, would, you would look at that man, and I know analogies break down, but you see where I'm going. You could say of that man, he is unable to hit doubles. And you could say of me, he's unable to hit doubles. But that statement says a very different thing about each of us. That statement describes my limitations, but it highlights an absence of limitations. Why can't he hit doubles? Because all he hits is home runs, that's why, right? So you see, this is the point that he's, that he's making about um, statements of inability. We assume that, they, that we conclude from an inability statement an, a lacking of power or of ability or something like that. And that's just, that's just an incorrect assumption on our part. It doesn't always do that. It depends on what the nature is of the preventer. Um, now, again, I know that analogies break down and there's some... But well, any thoughts before we, we continue here? Um, about, about those sorts of statements, about what we're saying here. And open up the floor for some comments or questions. Okay. So it would re represent a self-contradiction in a, in a number of ways, maybe not just one. There's another thing we need to take from this, and this is, I don't know that we think about this enough, but I think we're, we're moving, you know, this is a study of the doctrine of God. Our goal here in this whole study is to come to, to align our thoughts more properly with, with, with the scriptures. How is God really? Right? How has he revealed himself? There's a bigger issue that we're, that we're getting at as we make these sorts of distinctions. I think it's very important for us to make. Um, one of the things that we... Um, one of the things that we're doing right now as we're saying that God is these things and therefore those things are outside of him, that he, 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 he cannot do those things, is that we're actually affirming, now this is going to sound really simple, but, but it's not. We're actually affirming that God is something. Right? God is not nothing and God is not everything. God is something. He, he has a nature. He has a divine nature. Right? He is not everything. And that means that there are parameters on the nature of God. So the Bible can say things like 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all. Right? That's a statement of parameter on the being of God. God isn't everything. We don't worship with, what are those uh, black and white symbols with a little bit of black dot in the white? And what is that called? The yin-yang, yeah. We reject those concepts of God as some sort of all. God has parameters. He is something. And he is not everything. Now, we assume that as we go through and discuss his attributes. But sometimes I think we fail to really think about the implications of that. And it, it comes up in, in these sorts of contexts. If God is light, then he is not darkness. If there is no darkness in him, then everything 
uh, associated with darkness is outside of God, and what is associated with light in that context is God, right? The Bible makes these, these distinctions, and that would, that would necessarily mean the sorts of things that we're saying here. Um, so, so, for example, then, lying, we would say lying is not in the nature of God. It is not in his nature to lie. Think if we, if we get at it that direction. If, if you're struggling with a statement, God can't blank, maybe getting at it in this way is, is a little bit, is, is helpful. Uh, because it, it helps us to understand that um, we're not describing limitations on God's power, but we are trying to conceive of omnipotence more faithfully. Right? If in my mind omnipotence means yin-yang, or that he can do everything, anything, I, I have departed from the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. He has spoken of himself as being light and not darkness. Right? He is a God of order and reason. Uh, and and the, you, you see where, we, where we're going with these things. So this, this helps us to conceive of omnipotence more faithfully. Um, and this is why we will define the extent of his power in this way. We're going to say God's omnipotence is this, that God can do all his holy will. This is why the catechism ended in that place. Uh, God can do all his holy will. He can do, these were the categories that we found in scripture, right? He can do whatever he pleases. There is nothing he sets about to do that he finds too difficult. That's not the preventer ever for God. Difficulty is never a preventer for God. Someone outside of him frustrating him is never a preventer for God. Anything he pleases to do, he just does. And nothing he's tried to do has ever been too hard for him. So the question, I think, for us is, can we be satisfied with that? Um, God can do all his holy will. All things are possible with God. Can we come to see those things as the same statement? When we say all, when the Bible says, all things are possible to God, can we hear that statement and think this? Because this is what we're being, this is where our mind is being directed. Right? Um, I wonder, what do you think that the Bible wants us to do with those statements uh, of, of Scripture? When the Bible says, all things are possible with God, what is it intending us to do with, after reading that statement? Do you think it's intending us to raise our hand and to say, you know, excuse me, but actually, technically, can he really do? Is that what the Bible is expecting us to do with that statement? Or do you think it's expecting us to say, amen, yes, praise the omnipotent God of the scriptures? Right? This is what it's calling us to do is to respond in affirmation and to respond in worship. Uh, Frame will say this uh, about this statement, with God all things are possible. He says, this is a normative premise that should govern the thinking of his people. That statement should govern the thinking of his people as concerns the power of God. 
with God, all things are possible. When someone asks me about how powerful God is, this should be my answer. With God, all things are possible. Might there need to be qualifications and explanation at points, given the circumstances? Maybe so. We're having to do it this morning. Uh, I hope I'm not, I doubt I'm the only one that has wrestled with these things before. Of, can I say that he can do all things? Because We wrestle with these things, but this is where we should end. This is where we should get to. God can do everything he pleases. Nothing is too hard for God. With God, all things are possible. Um, now, this is going to lead us, um, well, I'll pause again here. What are you thinking? I'm going to take a drink of my coffee. Any, any thoughts that are brewing that you want to share with us that will be encouraging or helpful? It's not a quantitative difference. Limitations outside of ourselves, and he does not. Yeah. Now, I mean, the, the questions, I like the, the, the other questions you brought alongside of it. And and you said they're the wrong questions. Mostly, they probably are the wrong questions. How big is God? Well, what? But if let's say a child asks that question, or let's say we're studying the doctrine of God, and and we're studying, uh, um, you know, the the idea of omnipresence, and we ask, how big is God? That can set us up just like this is. It can set us up to to come to understand, to maybe come to grow in our understanding of the categories. Because I think it's a categorical confusion a lot of times. That's why the answer is consistent with Yeah. It's like some thoughts been put into the, the catechisms for our kids and for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. I, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I, I remember driving to work and thinking about, about that with that catechism question. Can God do all things? Yes, semicolon. God can do all his holy will. I mean, there's, that teaches us. That's just such a simple, oh, it's good stuff. What else? Anyone want to follow Rob and his question? <laughs> Let me take us in a, in a slightly different direction, um, but in the same way that we did uh, a few weeks ago. You, were you here when we talked about God's righteousness? That was maybe three weeks ago. Um, one of the things we saw when we went through uh, the chapter on righteousness was that, you could say, to our surprise, the Bible reveals God's righteousness and speaks of God's righteousness, particularly in the realm of salvation. I say surprise because we kind of talked about, if, if we're thinking about the righteousness of the holy God, when that comes into our sphere, I would expect that to come up in the sphere of condemnation and judgment and punishment. But we were surprised to see the extent to which God speaks of his salvation of people in terms of his righteousness. Uh, well, we, we, we can notice something very similar to that here. Um, what is it that we really want to know about God? Uh, when, when we're trying to learn about the power of God, what, what do we really want to understand? What do we need to know uh, as, as fallen human beings? Uh, what do we need to know about the power of God? Do we really need to know whether or not he can make a square circle? Is that what, what burns within us and what keeps us up at night? Or is what we need to know about the power of God um, we, is what we need to know about his power? Can he really save me? 
he says that he can save me. I'm, I'm learning about his, his perfect standard, his eternal righteousness. I'm learning about myself by comparison. Can he really save me? Uh, can he do the incredible things? He's promised to do them. I hear him promise them. And I know he wouldn't lie intentionally, but maybe he's not actually powerful enough to do that because those are some, that would require some real power right there. Can he save me? And this is, this is what we see in the redemptive storyline of Scripture. We, we see him as he puts his power on display. We see that this is a God who is strong enough to do these things. He can redeem, he can rescue people who seem far beyond rescue by any normal expectation. He can undo the seemingly irreversible things. He can redeem the unredeemable. Um, as, as God is putting his power on display in Scripture, this is what he's showing us about himself. We know from the first verse that he spoke a universe into existence, right? He spends the whole Bible proving that he can do these things. He can redeem what is otherwise unredeemable. So what does the Bible show us about God's power? I mean, I think this is the best context and the most proper direct context to have the kind of statements that we've had. What is impossible with men is possible with God. This is what we care about. This is what matters to us. And God has abundantly answered those questions in his word. With stories, with straight out teaching, but he proves to us of himself in our own lives and in the lives of those that we love. Um, now we're going to make a very big, sh- I kind of wish we could just end here. Uh, this is the end of the specific uh, teaching on the power of God. We're going to shift because he brings in, um, he, he, he's going to say, God's power works according to his will, which is a very important statement. But then he's going to, from then on, he's going to talk about the will of God. So we're going to shift to that here in just a moment. Another very big subject, and we're going to just sum it up. Before we do, last chance for any, any thoughts or comments on what we're saying about the power of God Revealed to us in Scripture. Okay, good. It's officially off of, off of me. If I talk all the way to the end, I gave you the chance to, to jump in. Okay, so the will of God. Um, let me repeat that statement that he uses to transition into this. God's power works according to his will. We've already sort of said that as we've said God does whatever he pleases. Right? It's according to the will of God that his power operates. Um, and so we could even combine a couple of things. We could say, uh, you could say the same thing of, of his nature. God works in accord with his nature. He works in accord with his will. And we're not really making a, an, an important distinction there, uh, as we've seen when we talked about the simplicity of God. Uh, but he's going to give a little bit of a primer here about how we think about God's will. Uh, and I'm going to take that primer and sum it up even, even further. So he describes the way that Reformed Christians have spoken about God's will in two categories. If this is the place in the book where this comes up, then there's some, there's some definitions 
that are important for you to know, for all of us to have, have thought about. And this is really helpful. Uh, have you ever seen this distinction between the, God's will of decree and his will of precept? And there are some other words that have been used too. These are what he uses. The decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God. Let's read these definitions and then just talk about them for a moment. So the, the will of God's will of decree is his eternal purpose by which he foreordains everything that comes to pass. This is a technical way of saying what R.C. Sproul always said so well. There is not a rogue molecule in all of the universe. Never has been, there never will be. Everything functions according to the will of God in this decretive sense. But that's not the only way that the Bible describes the will of God, and it's not sufficient to, uh, to think of the will of God uh, as an entire subject. So we need to combine with that uh, this second category, the preceptive will of God. And this is, here's how Frame descri- uh, defines it, God's valuations, particularly as revealed in his word. Right? So um, here's an example of this. Uh, has God ordained that there would be um, murders that happen at points in the course of human history. Is that a part of God's ordained plan for history? I mean, it better be because Jesus was murdered, right? God has ordained that that would happen. When it happened, it happened according to his purposes and his will. It's what the apostles say early in Acts when they're convicting the Jews and they say, this man Jesus who you... uh, Well, let's just read it. I don't have it here. This is early in the God of Abraham. This is Acts chapter 3, 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Um, that's not the right passage. What am I looking for? Somebody help me. Chapter 2, 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God promised through him in your midst. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Why did Christ die? It was the predetermined and foreordained plan of God according to his perfect knowledge, right? So the murder of Jesus was decreed, this is what we're talking about, from eternity, right? What does the Ten Commandments say about murder? Thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not murder. That commandment is, a, is, a, a, is an accurate revelation of the will of God, his preceptive will. So maybe an example like that can help us to understand the distinction. God commands, and it is his will, thou shalt not murder. God has decreed it from eternity past that his son would be murdered at the hands of sinful men. Right? Do you see the distinction that we're trying to make as we look between those two, uh, those two definitions? So here's a helpful statement that Frame makes. God's decretive will 
cannot be successfully opposed. What God has decreed will certainly take place. It is possible, however, for creatures to disobey God's preceptive will, and they often do so. Every time we sin, we have disobeyed God's preceptive will. We have not, however, managed to slip ourselves outside of the eternal plan of God and, like we said before, frustrate him. I didn't want you to do that. I didn't think you were going to do that. Now I have to change my plan because you did something that I know. That God never says that. Everything that happens, happens according to the plan, the perfect eternal plan of God. That's what we're describing here. And yet in the context of redemptive history, he does reveal his perfect standards. And those are, we can speak of those as a reflection of his will. So salvation, I think, too, is a, is a big um, example of those two wills in operation. God commands all, God commands all to repent and come to him and expresses a desire that they would do so. And yet he has chosen to act um, toward his elect in salvation and to pass over the rest, as, as he describes them in Romans, chosen vessels of wrath. This is a description of the decretive will of God. Uh, and Frame asks, uh, or he says a lot of people ask this question, uh, which one is the real will of God? Which one's the real will of God? Okay, they're both his will, but which one's his real will? Do you think Frame likes that question? I'm giving it away by my facial. He does not like that question, right? Um, Frame's going to say, we cannot think of one or the other as the real will of God over the other. Both are valued in Scripture, and uh, one is never compared unfavorably to the other. This is a description of who God is and how he has worked. All of it accurately represents God as he's revealed himself. So we don't want to try to make that sort of a, of a judgment between the two. But he points out some interesting examples where people have tried to do that. And if you want to see those, you can go uh, read the chapter. It's like the last page of the, of the chapter. Um, now, there's a lot more that, that, there's some more that he says uh, in that book about the will of God, especially on one topic, and that is uh, what some people call the third will of God. Uh, the, and it's kind of this sort of situation. What is God's will for my life? Susan? Is his will for me. How can I know God's will for my life? It's those questions. He deals with that in some, over the course of four or five pages, um, and, and is helpful. But here's another plug for, well, I've plugged this before. We went through this book, the men did on Saturday morning last year. That question is this book. That's, that's the whole point of this book. This is Kevin DeYoung. It's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. And it, is, uh, it, it, it falls the same place that Frame does, but I think it's much more memorable, easy, easier to understand. So if you're struggling with, those, with that question, this would be a great thing to read too. And I just wanted to end by reading something from the foreword of the book to give you a sense of where they both go with that. All right, here we go. The first paragraph is a joke, so I'll give it away at the start. It is God's will for you to read this book. Yes, I'm talking to you. What are the odds that you would just happen to pick up this book and flip open to this page and start reading? 
obviously it's a sign. Of all the millions of books in the world, you found this one. Wow, I have chills. Do not pass up this divinely orchestrated moment. If you miss this moment, there's a good chance you will completely miss God's will for the rest of your life and spend your days in misery and regret. Next paragraph. Now that I've scared you, let me acknowledge that everything in the previous paragraph is total baloney. It's bunk, not true at all. Actually, I don't know if it is God's will for you to read this book, but I do think that reading it could be a really good idea. <laughs> and he goes on from there. All right? It's a great just uh, picture of what they're going to say. It should be our posture toward those kinds of questions. They don't tell us the alternative in that paragraph right there, but they sure do in the chapter or in the rest of the book, and it's very, it's very good and helpful. So maybe that's a bit of a cliffhanger to end on. Uh, if you want to know more, go read. Uh, any, any, we have five minutes of, uh, for thoughts, questions. Well, then we have some extra time to uh, catch up with each other from the week, so let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this, for this study. We thank you for this morning in particular. Uh, we, we, uh, it's, it's often not very far from our conscious mind. Uh, the steady dangers that are around us, the uncertainties, uh, the wickedness. But what sometimes is farther from our minds is the settled extent of your power. Uh, your, your perfect purposes and plans which cannot be frustrated, uh, and the perfections of your power, that you can do all your holy will, and that everything you do is good, and that for your children you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Sometimes those thoughts are a little bit further away from our conscious mind, and what results is worry. Uh, what comes is anxiety, uncertainty, discouragement, you for mornings like this that give us the chance to uh, repent of those things, to see them as demonstrations of unbelief. Your power is just too great. You have way more power than anyone else, as he puts it so simply in this chapter. But as we've seen this morning, even that is a completely inadequate explanation you are altogether different from us. We are characters in your story that is a good story with a good ending. Not just for your creation as a whole, but for us, your people individually. And so, Lord, we pray that this times like these and studies like this would, would arm us with more strength and confidence and peace. Because that is the only appropriate reaction to the sorts of things we've seen this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the way you have revealed yourself to us. We pray for our, our service that continues now, that it would bless and honor you as the all-powerful one who lovingly rules over us. We thank you for Jesus, who is himself the expression of this power of yours, and even specifically this power extended to us in salvation. Who do we need to fear? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.